Last week, we explored the overseas cemetery maintained by the American Battle Monuments Commission. This week, for part four, the final part of our Military Cemeteries series, I'll be exploring things back here on the American side, looking at the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs and the National Cemetery Administration. I'm Liz Clavin, and this is Tim with a View. So, bringing things back stateside to wrap up this series. Um, this uh, this episode's coming out a little late, so I do apologize for that, but it is actually coming out on July 4th. Uh, so, happy Independence Day for those of you who are still celebrating it at this point. I feel like it's um, not really the thing this year. Um, I confess I hate fireworks. Um... You can have hot dogs and hamburgers anytime, and, well, parades were never my thing. I come from Rhode Island, um, which, if you did not know this, here's a useless bit of information. Bristol, Rhode Island actually has the country's oldest 4th of July parade. Uh, Bristol, beautiful seaside town, um, and they actually, instead of having the traditional double yellow lines down their streets, they have red, white, and blue stripes, um... And then growing up, I grew up on the parade route in Arnold Mills. So we always went to the parade. And I hated it then. And it's so funny because the older I got, when I still lived at home with my mother, she and I both became super parade haters. Because, you know, everybody tries to park in your yard and walk. And it's just a nightmare. Uh, I know that it's only a couple hours out of one day a year, but it still annoys the hell out of me. Um, (laughs) So I am not the most patriotic person on the 4th of July, full confession, but it does make a lot of sense that we did this series in between um, Memorial Day and the 4th of July. It's been very interesting and very educational for me in a number of different aspects, Certainly, uh, I want to thank all of you who did tune in last week for the AGS virtual conference. Uh, I know that I definitely had some listeners who were on there, so I appreciate that. I got really good feedback on the sort of expanded version that I did of the Mortuary Railroads Part 2 episode. Um, Apparently, I've attracted the interest of some people up in D.C. who do tours about this stuff. Um, Somebody reached out to me via email, so that's been good. Um... That being said, I think I am ready to take a slight break from military history. Um, It's one of those things that I think it's interesting, certainly, but I get very easily overwhelmed by it. Um, A lot of it is very technical, and a lot of it is so specific, I think, to people in the armed forces. Um, I don't do well with structure and authority myself. I would not have lasted 10 minutes in the military. (laughs) So um, a lot of it to me seems a little daunting just because it is so institutional. And I feel like if you have been in the military and if you are used to that environment, it probably feels a little bit different. Um, When it comes to national cemeteries here, uh, interestingly enough... um, If you are in the field of academia and if you do research on cemeteries, one of the things that you learn very quickly is that if you go to any other kind of conference, so not a cemetery conference, which right now there's not many cemetery conferences, um, 
but I went to uh, the National Council on American Urban and Regional Planning History Conference. It was in Cleveland, I guess 2017. I was there because it only happens every other year. Um, I think it was in D.C. last year. So in 2017, I went there. Um, The whole conference was a disaster. I missed my plane and ended up having to drive to Cleveland. Found out I was staying in the absolute hood um, in a very scary house that was an Airbnb. Overall, it was not a great trip. The weather was miserable. It was freezing cold. I had to go out and buy an extra sweater because I didn't bring enough warm clothes. But anyways, the session that I was in, and I was doing a presentation of my thesis research, which was on the influence of Swan Point Cemetery on the urban planning of Providence, Rhode Island, specifically the neighborhood of Blackstone. Um, You will find that if you do cemetery research at these type of conferences, you get dumped into the catch-all category. There's not a lot of people who do cemetery research, um, but a lot of times you find yourself in weird categories. Um, One year at the Southeastern uh, chapter of the Society of Architectural Historians Conference, I was in with somebody who did a paper on reconstructed railway cars. Cemeteries just don't fit neatly into other conferences sometimes, but this conference was exciting because I can't remember what the third person did. I'm sorry, I don't remember. But myself and another woman, we were both doing cemeteries, and she actually worked for the National Cemetery Administration, the Department of Veteran Affairs. And she was talking about the planning of some of the newer national cemeteries. And so that's always kind of stuck in my mind. Um, And it's going to become clear why it's kind of an evolving field. And I think it's interesting because a lot of the topics that I discuss on here are things that are way in the past and they're not really continuing. But this aspect, at least, of the national cemeteries topic is still growing and will continue to grow. So to start off with, what are we talking about when we talk about the National Cemetery Administration? So it is under the umbrella of the Department of Veterans Affairs. It has not always been. And I'll get a little bit more into that later. But this is the practice that grew out of the Civil War. And so when we talked about this back in part one, you'll recall that there was a whole bunch of national cemeteries set up to handle the dead after the Civil War. And those... I think roughly 15 cemeteries, don't quote me on this, it's been a couple weeks, that were set up following the Civil War, they formed sort of the core number. And for a very long time, they were the only ones. There was discussion, actually right around the time that World War II started, of expanding and putting up more national cemeteries, mainly to deal with veterans of World War I. Um, despite the relatively short period that we were involved in World War I, obviously there were a number, a really large number of veterans who served. But the war put that on hold. And it's actually not until after all of the logistics have been figured out with the Battle Monuments Commission and all of that stuff that we actually get around to the like sort of nitty-gritty, dirty business of national cemeteries. So up until this point, you'll recall that they were kind of the purview of the quartermaster general of the army. So they are held by the army for well over 100 years. So from the Civil War onwards, the national cemeteries that exist 
are under the overarching power of the army. That will eventually change. And that is going to change with Public Law 9343 from 1973. And a couple of things happen. The biggest thing that happens is World War II. Unprecedented numbers of Americans served in World War II. Come the 1960s, these folks start dying. Keep in mind, life expectancy was a little bit shorter then. So if you were 40, say, when you served in World War II, you know, 20 years later, 25 years later, you're in your mid to late 60s, you start to have your first wave of veteran deaths, like really large wave of veteran deaths. And even if you assume that only a small percent of them are going to want to be buried in national cemeteries, suddenly you have a need to expand the system the way that it existed. And in 1973, there are a lot of kind of competing voices who want to talk about this, who really want to explore it. Um, So prior to that, there had always been the veterans' rights for burial. And we talked about that between repatriation or burial in an American Battle Monuments Commission cemetery. Um, For the most part, there is no growth, but they are still active. And mainly it's through issuing markers, government-issued markers. Now, again, these are the ones that we have all seen. So... On the American side, as opposed to the American Battle Monuments Commission we talked about last week, these are pretty standardized markers. They get an update in 1922. So there's sort of the Civil War, Spanish-American War era markers. Then you get the World War I, World War II markers. These evolved further with the advent of Memorial Parks because they also started to issue, instead of just upright tablet headstones they started to issue flat garden style markers in marble granite and bronze so i think it's interesting that even though they are not expanding the national cemeteries are keeping up with the major trends in civilian cemetery design because keep in mind that the establishment of forest lawn memorial park and the massive growth of it happens right after world war one So it reopens in 1917, and it is booming by the late 20s, even going into the Depression. So that's when we're really going to see a massive proliferation of the Memorial Park style. So when we think about markers for veterans, they really follow general trends, transitioning in terms of materials and things like that. So in 1973... What happens is this is the transfer from the Army to the VA. Um, I'm going to talk about this in a second. The Army does retain control over a few things. Now, at the time, the VA actually already had 31 cemeteries of their own. And most of these were cemeteries that were located near either military hospitals or convalescent homes. So they already had 31. And... With Public Law 9343, they received 82 cemeteries from the Army, taking the total of national cemeteries in 1973, which is sort of the modern era of, you know, the National Cemetery Administration, up to 103. 
The army does retain control of just two cemeteries. I'm sure you can already guess what one of them. One of them, of course, is Arlington National Cemetery. The other is the U.S. Soldiers and Airsmen House Cemetery. Both of them are in Washington, D.C. So the Department of the Army continues to maintain both of those. The other 103 are transferred over. Now, in the 70s, burial in these was not considered to be as popular as I would think of it today. Their assessment was when they received those, or when they compiled those 103 cemeteries in the 70s, their estimate would be that the available grave space in all of those 103 cemeteries would be full by 2020. Guess what? That's this year. This is also one of the problems is that there are not a lot of contemporary cemetery books. So I tried to find the most up-to-date statistics. It's not something that they update terribly often, unfortunately. So there becomes a major push right after Veterans Affairs takes over to expand the system. And this expansion, what they propose, and this is always how I thought that they structured the system, but it turns out I was wrong. So I admit when I'm wrong. I always assumed that there had to be a national cemetery within 100 miles of every veteran. It turns out that was just what people were pushing for. Um, and I talked about this back on the listener submitted questions episode where, you know, people are reluctant to bury their loved ones too far away from them. In some cases, like the overseas burials that we talked about last week, it's a matter of prestige and being buried where you fall and with your comrades. Or I can see, you know, those who are eligible for burial at Arlington, it's considered to be a matter of prestige. But... It's one of those things that, so, I, I confess I don't know a lot of folks who are buried in veteran cemeteries. Um, I actually only know two. Um, so my stepmother, um, her stepfather, I know, confusing. His name was Erwin. Um, Erwin was born in 1920, died in 2001. And so he was a veteran of World War II. Um, interestingly enough, he was originally a German immigrant. He immigrated through Ellis Island when he was a child. But... Fought for the United States in World War II. And so when he died in 2001, he was buried at the Massachusetts National Cemetery, which is in Bourne. So it's on Cape Cod right when you go over the Bourne Bridge. There's two bridges that you use to access Cape Cod, for those of you who might not be from around there. It's that part of Massachusetts that sticks out like an arm, like a flexed arm. Bourne is right over the bridge. And then six years later, when his wife died, um, my stepmother's mom... Ellie, um, she was buried there with him. And I cannot say that I think anybody ever went to visit that cemetery. Because it was probably an hour and a half from where we lived. But he was a veteran, and that's where he wanted to be buried. So I can certainly see the conundrum. And even to me, 100 miles is far. That's really far to consider anybody to drive for, you know, regular visitation. So this was the big push, and what I have discovered is that it never really happened. And I understand why for a couple of reasons. First of all, there are some areas where it's just not feasible. Um, and these are places that tend to be lower in population. 
And this was something that I saw when I did the funeral trains episode too, is that some of these depots were serving huge areas just because the population was sparse. Um, Places like South and North Dakota, for example, um, Montana, Wyoming. Some of these places, it's just not practical to have multiple national cemeteries because the population doesn't warrant it. There's also issues in some places about acquiring sufficient land. You do get land through donations in many cases for national cemeteries, and I'll talk a little bit more about an example of that later. So there's definitely some challenges to having one within 100 miles of everybody. Now, the historic nature of some cemeteries also means that there are ridiculous concentrations in some areas. So, for example, there are 16 national cemeteries in Virginia alone, and that's not counting the additional three in Washington, D.C. So you have 19 in a relatively small geographic area. When you look at something like that, it's kind of like, oh, well, the, the poor folks out there in the upper Midwest, they don't have any. Whereas we have all of these in Virginia, well, a lot of it has to do with what happened there. Keep in mind, that's where a lot of the cemetery burials ended up um, following the Civil War and things like that. I think that they're doing it much more strategically now. And you will excuse me, I have watched every informational video (laughs) that the Department of Veterans Affairs has on their website. I spent a good hour and a half watching all of their videos, um, most of which I would term as borderline propaganda, but um, I learned a lot um, and saw some really pretty stuff. So that's one reason. It's just not feasible to have them. The second is that the civilian funeral industry, and this is one of the things that surprised me, have lobbied very heavily against veteran cemeteries. So in 1988, the Monument Builders of North America discussed their concerns saying, quote, the private cemetery industry and the private memorial industry of this country have demonstrated their ability to fully and completely meet the burial needs of the citizens of this country, whether veterans or non-veterans, at no burden to the taxpayers. Efforts to expand the National Veterans Cemetery Program fly in the face of national trends, national experience, and national needs. Their argument, self-serving but legitimate, is that the government would be better served paying for burial in private cemeteries than expanding the national cemetery system. This is not currently the case, and I don't think it will be. That doesn't seem to be the trend. Um, And I'll get on to the third reason why I think that burial became much more popular in national cemeteries. But there are subs, so everyone is entitled to a free marker. Let me start with saying that. Whether you're buried in a national cemetery or private cemetery, everyone is entitled to a marker. So generally, if you are buried in a private cemetery and you have an upright headstone, you will get a flush veterans marker. That is provided. You do not have your actual burial or plot paid for you can get a burial stipend in certain circumstances, which it is a very long document. There are a lot of criteria you need to meet, and it's about $300 that you get. So for the most part, if you choose private burial, the private burial is on you, but the marker is free. Whereas if you choose burial 
in a national cemetery, soup to nuts, the plot, the marker, and perpetual care are all taken care of. Um, in some cases, depending on the distance, they can reimburse you for transportation. Um, the other costs, are like the cost of the casket, embalming, cremation, if you choose cremation, that is on the family. But all of the cemetery-related costs are covered. So, expansion started, and I will say that. Expansion 100% started. And I think that there is one inciting event, more so than just the death of World War II veterans, that really changed things. And that is the burial of John F. Kennedy at Arlington. I hate to harp on this, because I know it's something that I've talked about before, because I've talked extensively about the Kennedy gravesite, the very visible and the very public memorialization of JFK at Arlington, you cannot underestimate the impact that it had on the American people and what they saw. And, you know, he was a PT boat captain. He was a veteran. In many ways, I think people related to him, particularly veterans of World War II. So I think that the Dignity and the visual representation, not just of Arlington, but of a national cemetery, very much spoke to these people. It is a cultural touchstone. This happens in 1963. Within a decade, in 1973, you have the beginnings of the expansion of the national cemetery system. I see no reason that the two things wouldn't be correlated. I think it's something that really speaks very heavily to capturing the imagination and the spirit of a generation that particularly those who died in World War II were going to start seeking things out. So it does expand by several cemeteries through the 70s, through the 80s, and starts to grow. Um, So it's interesting. I was reading um, The Last Great Necessity, which I've talked about before. It's my favorite American cemeteries book. I think it just has the most comprehensive history. Um, and the data in here is, uh, the, the book was published in 1991, so the data is a little out of date, because it's from 1987, and just to give you perspective on how out of date that is, that's the year I was born. <laughs> so all of my life experiences have occurred since this data happened, but um, in 1987 alone, 55,000 Americans were in at and the rest of the National Cemetery System. And I love the way he writes this because he just, he says Arlington and then goes to the next line and the National Cemetery System. Because I was like, wait, wait, 55,000 just at Arlington? No way, that's true. <laughs> so I get a kick out of that. But so 55,000 in one year, that's a decent number. And you can see why they thought that the existing cemeteries would be full by 2020. That being said, 55,087 represented about 15% of veterans. So even still, you have a fraction. And this is 91, so, you know, you are at this point, you know, Gulf War is just, just getting rolling. So this is before the Gulf War veterans. This is before Iraq and Afghanistan. So the numbers are going to continue to grow you didn't have Vietnam veterans dying in the numbers that they are today. You know, you look at most Vietnam veterans. So if you went to Vietnam when you were 18, 
in 68, that means you were born in 1950. So Vietnam veterans are quickly aging, and they are going to begin to be a major portion of those being buried in national cemeteries. So it does continue to grow for a number of different reasons. So let's talk about what it does look like today, not in 1987. But so today there are 147 cemeteries total. 131 of those are under the auspices of the Department of Veterans Affairs in the form of the National Cemetery Administration. Two, as I discussed, are still under the purview of the Department of the Army, so both Arlington and the U.S. Soldiers and Airmen's Home, both in D.C. In addition, if you recall back from the first part of the Military Cemetery series, some of the National Cemeteries are under the purview of the National Park Service. These tend to be the earlier ones, the ones that were established as part of the initial law um, passed by Abraham Lincoln on July 17th, 1862. They are scattered, not all of them. Um, I think some of them it has to do more with cultural significance and the fact that they're associated with a battlefield monument as well. So you have a lot of the um, you know, usual suspects. So Yorktown, Vicksburg, Antietam, Fredericksburg, Shiloh, Stones River, which is in Tennessee, um, Poplar Grove in Virginia, Gettysburg, uh, Fort Donelson, which is also in Tennessee, Chalmette, which is in Louisiana, Battleground, which is in D.C., um, Custer National Cemetery, which is in Montana, um, Andrew Johnson, also in Tennessee, uh, and then lastly, Andersonville here in Georgia, um, most notably the, the Confederate prison. So these are sites that, in addition to being a national cemetery, they are also a place of you know, American cultural significance, usually associated with a national park. Within these cemeteries, um, 72 of them are still open for interments. Um, 18 are open for cremation only. And then 41 are not open to new interments, but they are open for interments in the same grave. So meaning if, you know, the husband was a veteran and has died, his wife wants to be buried with him, she can still be buried there. They're going to be in the same grave site. Um, some of the newest that have been opened are Cape Canaveral, Tallahassee, and then Colorado Springs, I believe, is the most recent opened. Um it's interesting to me, too, to see kind of where the distribution is and where certain populations are growing. I think it's interesting that two of the newest ones were both in Florida, for example. Um, so overall, there are not national cemeteries in every state. That's important to note. There are 3.2 million grave sites spread across 39 states and Puerto Rico, as well as 33 soldiers' lots and monument sites, um, which this could be a soldier's lot that is in a either public or private cemetery. It could be like a smaller memorial. They do vary. There, there's a group similar to last week when we talked about the American Battle Monuments Commission and how they also have memorials scattered around. In total, the national cemeteries uh, equal 20,200 acres, 
And of that, 57% is still undeveloped. And these numbers are from around 2015, so they might, it, it might have grown a little bit since then. Um, the estimate is that that 57% that's undeveloped is going to equal 6.8 million new graves. So the National Cemetery System is still growing, it's still expanding. And it's very interesting depending on where these cemeteries are. They have very different looks. Um, the newer ones tend to almost all be Memorial Park style. That is definitely a growing trend. Um, from what I have seen, the older ones tend to have upright stones. The newer ones tend to all be flat markers. I think it's just trendier. But depending on where you are. So I watched a very informative video about the Arizona National Cemetery, um, which is groundbreaking in water preserving techniques. Um, no offense meant to anybody that chooses to live in the American Southwest. I think it is the ugliest, most depressing place that I can think of. I would shoot myself if I had to live in the desert. Just not my thing. I don't get it. I think it's ugly. The scrubby sage and cactus. Oh, no, thank you. When I did my job search, I was like, I will go pretty much anywhere except the Southwest. I do not want to live in Phoenix. Uh, I've been to Santa Fe. Santa Fe was a cool town for an afternoon. I was ready to leave after that. Um, but anyways, so I watched this video about the National Cemetery in Arizona, um, which has something like 50,000 internments. Um, and it, in the American Southeast, there are traditions of swept cemeteries, um, particularly among the black community, where it's considered to be a sign of respect to keep grass from growing over a grave. But even in the Southeast, like swept cemeteries are, are few and far between. I've only seen a couple. Um, there's a bunch in Alabama that I saw when I went to the AGS conference there. There is one that I know of not too far from my office up in Duluth, Georgia. But still, they're a rarity. So the entire national cemetery there is essentially a swept cemetery. It is just flat garden-style markers in dirt. And they had this very feel-good video of people, like, sitting in lawn chairs on dirt at their loved one's grace and being like, this is so peaceful, this is so beautiful. And I was like, only people who already live in Arizona could say that. And you could tell, like, they, they did some plantings. Again, those kind of, like, scrubby, gross-looking desert trees and everything like that. I respect that they are groundbreaking. And I guess some of the newer cemeteries in California have also gone for these water-preserving techniques. But as somebody who's originally from New England, I, I just could not do it. Um, I don't get the aesthetic. I think it is god-awful ugly. But it takes a village. So anyways... These cemeteries are certainly adapting, and I think that they fit the setting in many ways. Um, and there are some really remarkable examples. And I'm going to, at the end, I'm going to talk about two examples. Because I confess, I have not been to a lot of these. Um, mainly because, this is going to sound snobbish, but as somebody who's really interested in cemetery history, there is a certain uniformity to national cemeteries that does not make them as interesting. 
either visually or culturally. I could see if you're looking into the individuals who are buried there. But as an architectural historian, I tend to be much more interested in the planning, in the execution, in the monuments themselves. So for me, national cemeteries are not as exciting. And I'll kind of talk about the two that I have been to, at least most recently, um, and my impressions of them. So most importantly, who can be buried in these cemeteries? There's a big stress on the feel-good videos on the Veterans Affairs website about how easy it is to be buried at Veterans Cemetery. Uh, essentially, what you need is your discharge. You need to be honorably discharged from the Army. Actually, you need... Or from the Armed Forces, excuse me, not the Army. Actually, any type of discharge other than dishonorable. So if you are discharged for medical reasons, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. That's essentially it. If you want to be buried in like one of the big name cemeteries, mainly Arlington, Arlington, there are a lot more guidelines. You have to meet certain rank requirements and things like that. So Arlington will probably get its own episode someday. So I'm not going to go too much into that one. Also, for the most part, the other national cemeteries are slightly different. Um, but the big thing is, is that you need to have been, for the most part, honorably discharged from the armed services. Um, there are no rank requirements, nothing like that. Um, there are civilian personnel who are like associated with the armed forces, particularly from like World War II, uh, who are also eligible for burial. In addition to the serving member themselves, their spouse is eligible for burial and dependent children, which historically, I'm sorry, ladies, this meant if you were a spinster, like myself, uh, if you were a spinster, you were eligible for burial uh, with your father. Or dependent children, so if you were to, say, have an adult child who for some reason, because of health reasons, um, you know, developmental disabilities, who is still living with you, they are eligible. Hopefully that makes sense. Um, and if you are buried in the National Cemetery, so all of them are entitled to a marker. Uh, so if you are a veteran and you choose to be buried in a private cemetery, your spouse or dependent child is not entitled to a marker then. That is only if they are buried there. One of the things that has taken considerable pressure off the national cemetery system is the establishment of state veteran cemeteries. And this is one of the things that in the 1970s, I think there was some wheeling and dealing I haven't actually read this anywhere, but I get a strong feeling that this is what happened, where there was a lot of negotiation between the national cemeteries and states that were also interested in this. Perhaps states that had growing populations, perhaps states that were evolving quickly in terms of their demographics. Um, and I think that many of these states established cemeteries when they couldn't get a national cemetery. So one of the surprising things to me that I did not realize is I assumed that the Veterans Cemetery in Rhode Island, where I am from, was a national cemetery. False. It's not. It's a state veteran cemetery. So the Rhode Island Veterans Cemetery, uh, which is in Exeter, um, read the middle of nowhere, Rhode Island, as close to the middle of nowhere as you can get in a state that it only takes 45 minutes to drive across. Um, I have only ever driven past this back in my college days many moons ago, uh, the back road into the University of Rhode Island 
you could take the back road out at the end of the day so you didn't get stuck in traffic. And the back road out actually went by the Veterans Cemetery. It was actually right before you got on the highway on Route 4, um, which led you towards the north and civilization. But that was interesting to me that Rhode Island, as small as it is, is probably within 100 miles of the national cemeteries in maybe in Massachusetts and Connecticut, but they chose to set up their own state cemetery instead. And many states have done this. Um, it depends on a lot of different factors, uh, availability of land, again, population distribution, things like that. Um, you can see there are 11 states that do not have a national cemetery. So depending on where you are, so like in some place like New England, it's a little bit easier because things are a little bit closer. But once you get out towards the west, you know, where you have higher populations, you're going to have a much bigger demand. And I would imagine in areas that have an aging population, an older population, that puts even more pressure on the system. So these state institutions do take a little bit of the pressure off the national system. So it's a worthwhile question, when we get a new cemetery, how does it happen? And I have a little bit of insight on this because the National Cemetery here in Georgia is actually up in Cherokee County. It's uh, in a town called Canton. And it's a relatively recent addition. It was dedicated um, on June 4th, 2006, so the anniversary of D-Day. Um, and this is really an example of a piece of land that was donated for that express purpose. Um, so a gentleman by the name of Dallas Scott Hudgens Jr., um, known by Scott. Um, so Mr. Hudgens is pretty well known to me because I actually assessed his house for the National Register of Historic Places. Um, Mr. Hudgens is very well known. Um, obviously, no longer. He did pass away. He was born in 1923, died in 2000. So he's very well known in the greater Atlanta area as being a huge property developer. Uh, odds are, if there is a mall that is now dead somewhere around Atlanta, Mr. Hudgens was behind it. Um, so places like Gwinnett Place Mall, all of the stuff over in DeKalb that are now empty and used for horror movies, uh, odds are you have seen one of the properties that Mr. Hudgens developed. And his son now carries this on. His widow is still alive. Um, she's in her late 90s. I believe she's 96. Uh, and she still lives in the house. The house is a beautiful white Queen Anne on one of the last undeveloped parcels in that part of Gwinnett County. But that's kind of how the Hudgens family became known to me because I assessed their house and the property that was owned by them. But everything around there, there is a Hudgens Art Center in Gwinnett County. There is an interchange named after Mr. Hudgens. He, he's a big player in terms of, you know, local Georgia politics. But he himself um, was a veteran of World War II. Uh, during his tour of duty, he landed at Omaha Beach. Yes, that Omaha Beach on D-Day. Um, and went on to fight in the major battles throughout Normandy and Cherbourg. Um, he eventually would go on um, and fight all the way through to the end at the Battle of the Bulge. 
1995, he visited the American Cemetery at Normandy, which we talked about last week. And he was struck by the, you know, the majestic views over the English Channel, looking down to the beach where he had landed all of those years before, um, you know, at that point, 1990, so yeah, 51 years before. And he started to think about this piece of land that he owned in North Georgia. Um, he owned 775 acres there, and so what he did was he donated that land to the government for the construction of the Georgia National Cemetery. Um, you know, it does, it has a view of the North Georgia mountains, of Lake Alatoona, re- really, really striking piece of property. Uh, unfortunately, he did not live long enough, so it was not dedicated until 2006. So he did die six years before, but Mr. Hudgens himself is now buried at the cemetery that he donated. So just a little story, because um, I know I do have a lot of listeners here in Georgia, um, to give you an idea of how some of these newer cemeteries come about. Obviously, some of them, they are seeking out land because they know that there's a need, but in some cases, it is individuals who do donate the land. So to wrap it up, I'm going to give you sort of my personal experience with a couple of these national cemeteries. And it just so happens that in the past year, and I will say I'm very grateful that I chose to travel as much as I did last year because I'm not probably going to be traveling at all this year. Um, And if you know me, you know that I really only work so I can travel. Um, uh, There are a few things I love in life more than traveling. Um, I did get the opportunity on two of the major trips that I took last year to visit national cemeteries. And the first was one that's been on my bucket list for a while. I had never really had any desire to visit Hawaii. I like swimming. I like the ocean. But Hawaii was just not something I ever wanted to do. So when I flew to Australia, I flew Hawaiian Airlines. And I mentioned this briefly last week. And so I had a 22-hour layover in Hawaii. And I had a few things I wanted to see. Unfortunately, the memorial at Pearl Harbor was closed. They were doing work on it the week that I was there. So I did not get to see Pearl Harbor, uh, unfortunately. Um, But the one thing that was definitely on my list was that I wanted to see the National Memorial Cemetery of the Pacific. And this had captured my mind. It's actually, if you have seen the book, The American Resting Place, um, written by Mariam Yalom, it is on the cover. So the punch bowl, as it is colloquially known, is on the cover of that. And so the National Cemetery of the Pacific, Pacific is very striking, and it's known as the punch bowl because it is actually situated in the dormant crater of a volcano, hence the punch bowl. Um, so it's really striking. I remember I took either an Uber or a Lyft up there and winding through the hills, and the driver kept being like, are we there yet? Are we there yet? And I was like, no, you got to go all the way to the top. Um So it's really striking because you get to the entrance and you look down and here is this cemetery nestled in the crater of a volcano. So in terms of being a striking location, it it really is hard to beat. You have, you know, 360 degree views of the ocean all around you. Um, You look down over Honolulu. Um, I saw that it's one of the most popular tourist attractions in Hawaii, which is why it really surprised me because everybody when I told them where I went looked at me like I was absolutely nuts. Um, (laughs) you had 22 hours in Hawaii and you went where? Um, but it definitely is worth it. Uh, and this is an interesting one because 
first of all, it was established before Hawaii was a state. So it was established in 1949, dedicated on VJ Day. So Hawaii won't join the U.S. for another 10 years. Um, so it's dedicated before Hawaii is actually state. And it's also, I think, a very anticipatory cemetery because there's no way that they could have at that point necessarily seen the amount of burials that they would get from both Korea and Vietnam. So this was a cemetery that, yes, the devastation in the Pacific, um, there are certainly going to be a need for burials. But keep in mind what we talked about last week, how there are far fewer burials from the Pacific because so many are lost at sea there. Um, there are about 34,000 burials. Um, it's so interesting. Um, this is one of the closed cemeteries, so they're actually only accepting cremains now. So there are no more in-ground burials, again, unless you already have a spouse there and you're going to be sharing the same gravesite. Um, this is... Uh, one of the most interesting things, and I know I talked about this last week, is the fact that you have such a wide diversity of folks here uh, in terms of both religion, ethnicity, point of origin. Uh, Hawaii was such a, you know, Pearl Harbor, if you know anything about Pearl Harbor, I mean, it was such a large and important installation um, that you had folks who were serving in the military from all around the United States there. Um, about 13,000 of the burials there, so about a third are, are from World War II. So it has continued to fill up um, since then. It's interesting because this place, at least for Native Hawaiians, seems to have a really long kind of storied history, um, which was surprising to me. I did not realize. Um, I'm going to butcher this. The... Powana Crater, P-U-O-W-A-I-N-A. -I, -N -A. I, I know I butchered that. Apologies to my Native Hawaiian listeners. Um, was known as the Hill of Sacrifice. So I guess this was um, a place where either ancient Hawaiian secret burials were held out or possibly sacrifices, um, which I can't tell how much of that is just pure nonsense. Um it's a very pretty book to look at, um, but The American Resting Place is not my favorite in terms of academic source. Um, overall, the one thing I will say, there, there are a couple of things that struck me most about this. Um, first of all, this is one of the places where there is both a national cemetery that is maintained by Veterans Affairs and you have a memorial which is maintained by the American Battle Monuments Commission. So the Honolulu Memorial was not installed until 1964. Um, it has since been expanded, I believe, to include Vietnam. And it was considered important because so many were either missing in action or lost at sea, or buried at sea, in some cases, in the Pacific. Um, so there are 28,788 military personnel who are listed on the memorial. And um, it's a very kind of, I, I would almost call it Art Deco-ish interpretation of um, Columbia, who Columbia, if you are not familiar with her, she's sort of like the, the, the patron of America. 
um, like the symbol, the allegorical symbol of America, Lady Columbia. Um, and she's supposedly represents all grieving mothers. And she's standing on the prow of a ship holding a laurel branch. And below it is the kind of famous now um, excerpt from Abraham Lincoln's letter to Mrs. Bixby, who had lost four of her sons in the Civil War. The solemn pride that must be yours to have laid so costly a sacrifice upon the altar of freedom. Which, of course, you'll, again, going back to last week, you'll recall that's one of the same quotes that they throw around in Saving Private Ryan. One of the reasons for that sole survivor ruling. Um, to me, it's amazing that the cemetery was in existence for almost 20 years before this memorial. Because the memorial is such a centerpiece, and it's unavoidable. It's massive. Um, and it's also oriented, so it's actually right where the chapel is. There's a non-denominational chapel, which I have lots of pictures of this, so I can definitely share some photos. Um, really, really cool location. Um, and in terms of national cemeteries, there is definitely, it has its own unique flavor. So the most distinctive thing is the fact that for Memorial Day, and I happened to be there maybe a week before Memorial Day, but it had already started. Instead of the traditional American flag or wreath laying, they put lays on the graves. And so they actually put a call out to the people of Honolulu to donate lays. And there are actually criteria of what the lays are supposed to look like, how long they are. Um, and you will see that the lays decorate each one of the graves. And like I said, they had started it. They hadn't finished yet. But there were lays on a number of the graves when I was there. So I thought that was like a very interesting local tradition that has translated but still sort of ties in with this age-old custom of laying a laurel wreath or some sort of floral offering at the gravesite, um, but has cultural significance to the place that the cemetery was built. So I do really like that. And as much as I like to pick on the Arizona cemetery for their, you know, desert landscape, I understand that these things are not immutable, that something on Long Island is not going to look the same as something in Nebraska, and something in Nebraska is not going to look the same as something in Seattle. And they shouldn't, not at all. So that was my first experience with um, one of the major national cemeteries. The second experience I had was back in November when I went out to San Francisco. And I know that Ashley and I had talked about this on the Lost Cemeteries of San Francisco episode a little bit, but I'm going to talk just a little bit more about San Francisco National Cemetery. Because this one is interesting in the fact that it is a little bit earlier. So the majority of national cemeteries follow this very standardized guidelines. It has a very uniform look. They are all just the official markers. Um, but the earlier ones tend to be a little bit more flexible. And San Francisco National Cemetery was founded in 1884. So it's actually founded during that early, just post-Civil War Abraham Lincoln era, which I tend to think of the cutoff of that as 1890. Um, now, it should be noted, San Francisco National Cemetery is full. It is not a big cemetery at all. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the origins in just a second. There is a newer national cemetery, which is Golden Gate National Cemetery, which they are often confused for one another. I mean, just because 
the location of San Francisco National Cemetery is right at the quote-unquote Golden Gate. Um, however, an official national cemetery was actually established in 1937, 12 miles south of San Francisco. Why 1937? Well, if you recall, back then, that was the cutoff. That was when they banned further internments within city limits. Not just city limits, actually, I should say within the county. So this is one of the reasons that they opened up a new national cemetery because, first of all, they knew the existing San Francisco National Cemetery was going to be far too small to accommodate many more burials. Second of all, it was to fit in with this new edict. So the San Francisco National Cemetery is at the Presidio. Presidio, all it is is a word for fort in Spanish. And the Presidio gains significance really from the time of colonization on. Um, it's controlled by Mexico until like 1821, but then with the gold rush, they start to really expand it. So in 1850, Millard Fillmore really expands the Presidio as a military base, and it grows and grows and grows. Um, it's no longer a frontier. One of the things is, though, you need to have a cemetery. Most military installations have some form of cemetery either near them or on them, and so that's really where the origins of this cemetery are. It's going to continue to grow with the Spanish-American War, the Philippine-American War. Um, San Francisco is where the majority of the troops that go to the Philippines are going to ship out from. So the Presidio is going to be, first of all, where returning sick and wounded soldiers end up, where troops muster. It really, like, you can't overstate, like, how important this was. And... This is the reason that San Francisco National Cemetery becomes the first quote-unquote national cemetery on the West Coast. And it's because of the importance of the Presidio as a fort and the fact that it is essentially associated with it. And if you have ever been to the Presidio, it's one of those things that I was nervous when I first went there that I was going to have to hunt for it and things like that. Oh no, it's right there. The entrance is right across from, um, there are a couple of cute little streets where Probably the officers lived. They, they were larger, kind of nicer houses. Um, it's right there. Um, come World War II, the Presidio is incredibly important because they knew that the West Coast obviously was going to be the first place that Japan went for. Um, and then both sides of the Golden Gate were actually where Nike missiles were positioned during the Cold War. So it's hugely important, the fact that this tiny little military post grows to be one of the most important military installations on the West Coast. And it will continue to serve the military until it was transferred to the National Park Service in 1994. Um, so in 1884, when it becomes the first national cemetery on the West Coast, there are about nine acres. And within that nine acres was the old post cemetery. Um, so you have some of those earlier burials. Um, unfortunately, they don't necessarily know what all the burials are because some of them date back to the founding of the fort. So in 1934, they disinterred them and put them all in one plot together. Um, a lot of soldiers who were shipped back after these conflicts ended up being buried at the Presidio. Um, it's undoubtedly like 
the National Memorial Cemetery of the Pacific in Hawaii. One of the most beautiful views. It looks out over the Golden Gate Bridge, you know, 360-degree views, lovely, big, shady trees. It, it's a beautiful cemetery, and it's not huge. Um, there are a couple of monuments in there. Um, you know, there's a traditional Union soldier. Um, there's actually a memorial to the Grand Army of the Republic there. Um, and probably the coolest thing is that the the lodge, uh, the cemetery lodge where like the superintendent worked, and then they have like a little rostrum where like the maintenance stuff and the bathrooms are. I did use the restroom there, very clean. Um, they're beautiful, they're built in the 20s. They're Spanish revival with like the tile roofs. I also have great pictures of this cemetery. Um, I think that's an interesting case because it's a transitional cemetery, one that starts as one thing, but as you know, the military changes and the sort of scope of things evolves, it becomes very important and actually groundbreaking uh, for the West Coast. That gives you at least a little glimpse into national cemeteries. Like I said, there is a lot that is similar about many of these cemeteries, but they also do have some really unique and, I think, striking features. Um, I'm sorry that in all my time in Savannah, I never visited the, um, the Beaufort National Cemetery, which is not far away. I watched a couple videos of that on my, my Veterans Affairs research earlier, and it looks beautiful. So the next time I'm down in Savannah, it's definitely going to be a side trip that I take um, to see it. And I know that that is where um, Robert Gould Shaw and the 54th are buried. Um, so there's some significant burials there. Um, yeah, overall, I would encourage you if you are more interested, there are some interesting videos about like monument restoration, some of the work that's been done in national cemeteries, or if you want to see sort of the, the feel-good propaganda stuff about <laughs> the importance of military burials, you can certainly do that too. Um, it has been very educational. I think that there is an importance. Um, I struggle with the fact of calling these national shrines. That makes me nervous because it brings a certain religiosity to the entire endeavor that I know, quite frankly, makes me uncomfortable. But I think there's also something remarkable about the design and the uniformity of it. I mean, arguably, this is the largest cemetery system in the United States. And it is the most organized and in many ways the most uniform. So I think that there's something to be said for that. And I think that the sheer volume and the professionalism, because the majority of the people who work in these cemeteries are veterans themselves. And that's one thing I will 100% say, that many of these are people who not only served their country, but they continue to do that and they feel very strongly about it. Every single one of the, for the most part, most of the honor guards, uh, they are organized by the Department of Defense, but many of them are volunteers. They are retired military who give up their time to attend military funerals, to do the salute, to do the rifle salute, to present flags to family members. There is a lot of good that can be said about military cemeteries. And so hopefully you have learned some stuff, um, learned about sort of the stalwart men and women who really do make it their job to get these remains home and to give them a dignified burial because, you know, war is a messy and undignified business. And you like to think that something reassuring can come out of it. Maybe that's just me being a cynic. Either way, thank you so much for everything. As always, for your ratings, for your reviews, um, feel free to follow along at Tomb of the View podcast. 
uh, on Facebook, Tomb Period with Period A Period View on Instagram. You can always get a hold of me at Tomb of the View Podcast at gmail.com or check out the website at www.tombwithaview.weebly.com. I know I have a lot of new follows this week, so I want to thank everybody for that. I will be keeping everybody up to date um, about some of the ongoing stuff we have, specifically the work that so many of you are interested in getting involved with out at Piney Grove. So do stay tuned for that. But for now, I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb of the View.